What you're about to hear is the unbelievable journey of a boy from Holland who survived the horrors of the Holocaust to become a hockey legend. On the ice, he was known as the Flying Dutchman, and no death row or death camp could clip his wings. I was given a life and I will defend it and I will do the best I can with it. And now, as he fights his final battle against a slow and silent killer, David Dickie Gruntman wants you to hear his words in the hope humanity may finally learn from its evil past. It's July 14, 1942. A 19-year-old Dickie Gruntman has just been arrested with three friends while trying to flee Amsterdam to join the Dutch army in Britain and fight for his nation's freedom. They were turned over to the SS for being members of the Dutch resistance. Dickie's captors don't know of his Jewish heritage. We got to the jail and it had nothing to do with the Jewish program or so because the old boys were not Jewish anyway. And uh, so we had to go to court, to the German court. And uh, we got sentenced to death. All four of us. David Gruntman, Joe Grun, Jackie Jacobs and Andre Vandenberg. Four young men with their whole lives ahead of them, now political prisoners, staring down the barrel. As long as they don't shoot you on the spot, you've got a chance. Those seven months, six of them at least, I sit in a single cell. Nothing in there. I have to bring the bell if I want to do pee. They've got to bring the bucket in. No belt, no laces on your shoes. It's a death row cell. The only light for Dickie in all that darkness was a weekly delivery from an old family friend. Remember Auntie Truce, who ran the underground resistance? Every week you received uh, from your relatives, if you have relatives, clean underwear, toothpaste and whatever necessary. So I got every week from Tante Truce's daughter, Henny. She came on the pushbike to the jail and there was always a parcel for me every Monday. And in the toothpaste, we discovered she put a little note on grease roof paper and rolled it up in the toothpaste and I could get the message. Do you remember any of those messages? Do you remember what they would say? Yeah, well, mostly said, cheer up, everything is, you know, the allies are advancing and all sorts of optimistic messages, you see. But uh, very, very cute. What did that mean to you to get oh, that? It meant a lot to me. They were, well, she was like my sister, you know, that we were brought up together with our parents, went on holidays together. Dickie and his friends would spend seven months on death row, locked in cells alongside murderers and rapists. A cold shower is, is a mild expression, but to go from 1943, the first six months, to suddenly being an occupied country is hard to fathom. Even if you live in it for five years, you can't believe it. What sort of a toll did that time on death row take on your mind? I mean, as a boy. 
I had troubles with the certain things, thinking out and all that, and, but you're always alone, 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 in a cage, like a monkey. All I want is information. We are not expert military people, but a lot of people did big things and, and, and knew where ammunition was stored or so, and then they want to know that they do all sorts of pressure things to make you talk. So I have nothing to talk about. See, I haven't done anything. Boom, another whack on the head. The, the big shock I ever got was there. You see, they came at night, the Germans, to the jail, and they took out those prisoners that were sentenced to death and shot them. So one night, knock on the door. Out, quick, dress, get dressed, out. And there's two soldiers here and two behind me. And I walk out of the cell and the commander of the prison, he's got all his papers like you have in his hands, and he says, Menist! I keep walking. He calls Menist. I keep walking. One of the soldiers pokes me with his rifle in my back. He said, the commandant calls you. They're not calling me. So the commander, I turn around and he said, hey, what is your name? He said, Groentman. What? Yes, Groentman. You're not menist? Go back. I had to go back to myself. He took the wrong guy. Next door was menist. And he got shot that night. So that was a shock. A case of mistaken identity with a prisoner in a neighbouring cell that so nearly ended with Dickie being shot that night. Instead, another twist of fate saw him live another day. But what about the rest of his family? So you're sitting on death row, sitting in a single cell by yourself. Where is your mother and your sister at this stage? Mother and my grandmother are already gone. What had happened with them? When I went away, my organization, or part of my organization, straight away went to my mother, took her away for a couple of nights somewhere, and they found a house in Harlem where she spent the war with people. Because they would have called her too and give her a hard time, maybe for six weeks or eight weeks, whatever, but we don't want to do that. So she was hiding in the attic in Harlem. With your grandmother? With my grandmother. And she kept the whole family alive. Why? because she was a dressmaker. Everybody came. Most families had the breadwinner working in Germany. But they didn't send money or anything. It was not possible. And my mother, they had, for instance, uh, no clothing. Now, they had kids, and the husbands were in Germany. So they come to my mother with a big coat from the husbands. Said, big winter coat. Can you change that into, yes, I can, but I don't want money. What do you want? He said, carrots, potatoes, onions, anything edible. So she kept the whole family alive. So, and she was sewing every day. Wow. And what about your sister? My sister got picked up to it in a, in a roundo. They just picked up from home. They were sneaking the Germans. They said, oh, you all have to go to work, to work in camps. So people like my sister wouldn't dream of hiding. She said, I can work, I'll do it, you know. That you can think that they just take you out of the train and kill you. Unheard of. Mm. 
Dicky wouldn't learn the cruel reality of his sister and brother-in-law's execution at Auschwitz until after the war. As he sat in that cage waiting for the German officers to return with their rifles once more, and this time call his name, drag him from his cell, and finally fire, there was a glimmer of hope, a lifeline from the father of one of his friends and fellow prisoners, Andre Vandenberg. Mr. Vandenberg, his father is a strong businessman, he went to the Germans with a briefcase full of money. And he said to the general, he said, well, you got the four kids in jail, they're 17 years old, I don't know what they're doing. And somebody talked them into doing this, and they just, yeah, it looks like a good adventure and so forth. He said that they're not criminals. They're all under 21 years of age. You don't want to kill four kids like that. So I gave him 100,000 kills. And uh, we got commuted 15 years hard labor. 100,000 Dutch guilders, a bold bribe that paid off, or so they thought. The boys were taken off death row, only to be sent to the death camps. And then you were out of that cage and... Yeah, we didn't care if it was 50 years hard labour, we only knew it was till the end of the war. And so... You were taken from prison then, and, and what was the process? Well, the process was then the four of us were in Amsterdam, still in the, in the jail, and uh, one after another disappeared, and they all got sent to transport to all over Germany. And where did you go? Where was your first stop? Well, my first stop was in the south of Holland. The name of the place is Furcht. It was a big concentration camp, and I was there for about a week, and then I went to Bochum, in Germany, which is a hard labor camp. Then I went to another couple of camps for two days, three days, till I end up in Auschwitz. Can you describe for me what that journey was like and, and what the conditions were like on, on these transports and, and what you were thinking as you're moving from camp to camp? Well, we didn't know where we were going. We had no idea. We came out in Bochum. I come in a cell with 34 Dutch boys, including Catholic priests and what have you, and 34, oh, what are you doing? I don't know, we came here last week, we're still here. <laughs> Nobody knew anything. You just get your meals and you get aired, half an hour walking in the yard and then back in the cell and you sit there. <laughs> that went on for a few weeks and then to another camp and another camp and another camp and then in the end we end up in Auschwitz. What was the selection processes as prisoners would arrive? Well, I didn't arrive as most of the people arrived, which is in a big transport. There was only 12 of us because we came from small jails and ended up in Auschwitz. But the normal transport could have between two and 5,000 people on board. As they embarked, the German selection committee was standing there, looked at every and each one of them. Women, unless they were about between 20 and 30, all the women got sent to the gas chambers. Children, same story. The healthy men were put to the other side because they got to the work. 
And if they're not used for the industry, they send you to the gas But I arrived only with 12 healthy people. So we had no selection, but we all got our numbers and our uniforms and went to the barracks. And uh, then we go to the admission chamber. You've got to get undressed, we get deloused. Then we come to a fellow and he tattoos your number on the arm. And I had learned so much already that in the camp they have their uniforms and on the uniforms you have a triangle. And the Jews had a yellow star and the political prisoners had a red star. Jehovah Witnesses had a purple star. And there were so few other ones, so you recognize what you are straight away for the German. So we, he gave me my number and he had a, a H, political uh, prisoner, but he had a H in it. I said, hey, where's the H for? He said, I'm Dutch. So glad to know you, I'm Dutch too. So he was a Dutchman, was also convicted for so many years prison. And he got the job as a twist. And he gave me several tips. He said, how is it here? And I said, oh, it's very dangerous. He said, keep working, shut up, do your work and get out, stay out of trouble because they killed you for nothing here. And that was your first introduction to Auschwitz? My first, yeah. And you still have that? The number is still there, yeah. Never go away. You never thought or imagine getting it removed? You, you no. want that lasting reminder? No, I don't know. I'm not ashamed of it. I don't advertise it. It's just a thing. It's me. And when he put the tattoo on you, I understand you asked, you had a little request when he put that tattoo on you. Yeah, I say, oh, but I, I looked at other ones and they were huge all over the place. So I said, can you do it nice and neatly? He said, I do my best. And it was a very nice small number I have. And what number is that? 112,284. 112,284. It's a high number. It's a low number. It's estimated 1.1 million people died at Auschwitz alone. At the height of deportations, 6,000 Jews were gassed each day. Did at that stage you have any idea what you were about to face? No idea, no idea, I had no idea. We came into a barracks, we call them quarantine barracks, which is where you arrive and they keep you there and from there on they distribute you if they can use you to a certain type of work. So that's where I met my friend Cole Bartemann. He just came in from another camp and we were both, we started talking, he's Dutch, I'm Dutch. So that's where it started all that. But every day we got picked up for commandos, work commandos, they call it. So they put a hundred boys in a, in a block, you know, five, ten rows of five and then marching, head off, all that. And they march you out of the camp and then you end up on the railway somewhere doing heavy work, unloading trains, bringing potatoes to the kitchen. Fit and strong from his years on the ice, Dickie managed to make it through those early days on the railway, but countless others didn't have the physical or mental strength to endure such conditions. 
And in the morning was another lovely job that this would they turn the electricity off and then we had to pick up the dead bodies from the high voltage wire. People what had it up, it was easy to commit suicide, just put your head on the wire. That's it, boom, dead. Collecting corpses at dawn, the bodies of prisoners who'd reached the end of their tether and chosen to take their own lives. So your job was literally to go pick up? Yeah, not only my job, but, you know, we had hundreds of fellows that had to do that because camp is huge. And what did you have to do with these? Oh, we picked up the, the bodies and so we had a, a, a cart with two wheels and two fellows would run the cart and we throw the bodies all on the, on the cart and take them away and get burned. What do you think got you through? What, what got you through that time, through the... Well, I thought when I saw the people, I talked to them like you and I, and the next morning I find your body on the way, you know. I said, that's not right either. If you have given a life, you should defend it. You should, you know. I owe it to my mother. I owe it to my, you know, motivate yourself a bit. That's the last thing to take your life. That's, that's the end. It's finished. So I guess you count yourself just lucky that you never really got to the stage where you felt like you couldn't go on. Well, it was close several times, but I always motivated myself that I have no right to do that. I was given a life and I will defend it and I will do the best I can with it. And it's very precious. You can't buy health. That stoicism would soon pay off. And then one day, Cole came to me, he said, listen, they're looking for tradesmen to send to a factory. And I'm going for that because I'm a tradesman. He said, and you should go too. He said, because then you come out of this shit work and, and cold and freezing and killing, and you get into a proper job in, in, inside a building. He said, that sounds good, but I'm not a tradesman. He said, oh. he said, I'll tell you a few things. And when you come to the interview, you tell them that I was your master in the factory, and I will confirm that. David was far from an engineer. He was a kid whose toolkit consisted solely of a hockey stick and puck. But these lessons from Co Waterman, the Dutchman he'd befriended on that first day he arrived in Auschwitz, proved vital. Anyway, the day comes, and Co goes in front of me, and he... Yes, no, yes sir, yes sir. So obviously he had all the qualifications then, so I'll go straight after him to the same fellow. And he looks up at me. Was? The Wester Fachmann? Which means, what? You are a tradesman? I'm the babyface. So I said, no sir, I'm not a, a tradesman, but I'm an apprentice. And I've worked 80 and I kept talking. He said, I did it on the, on the airplane wing on the side of the wind. Anyway, and I said, and that's my master. So he said, go on. That put me in the factory for two years, out of the trouble. That's a big call to make, to lie to a senior officer. Or yeah. A, oh, yeah. I mean, in that moment, again... Oh, he can kill you. He said, you're lying, boom, shit, you're the boy. next. But that's one of those moments. Yeah, they're, they're, when I came to the boys, I was all shaking, you know. I said, oh, calm down, calm down. You're right, you're done, you're done. <laughs> We're going to hear some more stories as we keep going, but it seems your ability to... To talk your way out of situations well, may have been one of your saving graces. Maybe. I must say, nobody did last four years in the outside commando. Nobody. And the job is to get a good job. See to survive and do your work, stay out of trouble and, you know. 
Don't let the SS catch your eye for something illegal. Keep your head down. Yeah, keep your head nose down to the grindstone. And shut up and work. So that's just what Dickie did. He worked. Can you tell me what you were doing in the factory, what your job was and, and yeah. what it was like? Well, we were the manufacturing of 8mm anti-aircraft guns. Those anti-aircraft guns, they have a turret and they have a body and they have all sorts of moving parts. And my particular job was to make the ball bearing housing up to 5mm correct. And I have to grind them out. I had a special machine to grind them out. And I was, it was difficult, but in the end I could do it. But you couldn't be too wide because you get trouble. Because everything you do, every night work gets inspected. They come and inspect to check out if the size is right. Brutally aware of exactly what would happen if he stepped out of line. We come home from the factory, and we have a pal outside. Maybe 60, 80 in each room. We stand in the room, and the two couples, they are camp police couples. And they pick out two, three fellas, and they check the beds, if the stool is clean, that you keep everything clean. So they come back from the camp, and they say, bed, that and that, and bed, that and that, come forward. So they come forward. They drown them in front of us in the barrel because the bed wasn't nicely made. Every night they drug three fellas in front of me. Just for... So they could take the, the bread for one slice a day. And they would they would kill these? Yeah, kill people for that. Easy. And I understand that you had to sort of, I guess, play a part in some of those deaths, some of the, some of the prisoners who would be hung. Yeah. Can you talk me through, I guess, what they what they made you do? Well, there, there was all sorts of, I could only say, excuses. Like, your bed is not made, or this or that. Two, three times a week before we got our bread at six o'clock, we had to hang people. Half a dozen get hanged again today. Oh, they drowned five today. Every day. The killing goes on and on and on. But amidst the horrors, Dickie and his fellow prisoners refused to turn their backs on each other. In our room were about 180 people, all tradespeople, except for two fellows. We had two doctors on them, George Ettinger and uh, Dr. Sperber. But they were very good doctors, and one was a surgeon. So they had, uh, they had Jaime and he had appendicitis. How old was he? How old was Jaime? Jaime was probably 15, 16 years and uh, they decided to operate because he said he's going to die anyway. But we had no anaesthetic, so we want four fellas. I had one arm, another one on his legs, and one on his arm. And Hunt was laying there, and they cut him over with things. I think it was a bit of a thin can. Anyway, they did it, and he lived. But he fainted, he fainted. That was the good thing, but in the beginning. But they cut him open in front, in front of me. There in the camp? Yeah. And he lived? He lived. To tell the tale? Yeah. Remember Jaime's name. This isn't the last we'll hear of him. But first, let's get back to the factory. Dickie's reality for two years. 
And the men were on one side, and and there were there were women in the factory as well. Yeah, right opposite. I don't know, maybe say fifty, sixty meters away physically from me, and in between there were big garbage tins. On the other side of the garbage, there was a whole bank of girls working on engraving machines, because as the guns had to be adjusted, they have gratings on the side where they can measure exactly where to put the turret. So I had opposite me was a girl working, or there's all these girls were, maybe 20 on the machine. These young women weren't prisoners, they were civilians from Poland who'd been sent here to work, free to return to the relative safety of their homes, to sleep in real beds and eat real food. We waved to each other and said hello. And after a few days, I rubbed my stomach. And uh, one of the girls said, yeah, yeah. So a few days later, I go to work and the girl is there and she holds up a parcel. And she walks with the parcel to the garbage bin and she points at me. So she goes back to her machine. So I race to the garbage bin, pick up the parcel, have two nice, beautiful sandwiches. And that went on regular. Do you remember her name? Yeah, her... Official name is Agnes Pietalitz. And what did you call her? What was her nickname? Yeah, that was Layana. That was a, a very famous film star, German film star, Layana. And she looked like her. <laughs> so the, all the girls called her Layana. And that sandwich, I mean... Yeah, that tasted unbelievable. <laughs> would you take that back to the camp with you? Or? No, I ate it as I got it. <laughs> Straight in, down the hatch. <laughs> you don't leave any food stuff around because they steal it. This relationship with a pretty young Polish girl from across the factory floor would soon lead to one of the biggest calls Dickie would make inside the camp. He knew the war was coming to an end. The Allies were closing in. Dickie could hear gunfire getting nearer by the day, and at night, the sound of thousands of singing Russian soldiers boomed across the camp. The Germans had ordered the evacuation of Auschwitz, the prisoners would soon be moved to Mauthausen, one of the most notorious Nazi concentration camps located on the Danube River, 20 kilometres east of Linz in Austria. It was then, after three years of torture and torment, that Dickie was offered a route to freedom. The funny part afterwards, when our evacuation came, we had no SS in the factory. Only old army blokes to, to guard the exits, you see. And one of them, he was quite frankly, he was army, he was not SS. And we made a few things for him, you know, like a lighter and all that thing. And then he brought his bread. That's how we organized. Anyway, we go to the, come to the evacuation and he calls me over and he gives me a letter. And I have a note. And it was from Agnes. She said, I talked to Sergeant Worken, which was the name of this German guard. He said, he will walk on the end of the colony. You're being evacuated, as you know, and you'll be accurate. I want you to walk on the last row in the column. And Sergeant Worken will be walking close to you. And he will tell you when to run. And when he said, run, you go, and I'll be behind the column to catch you. And uh, because she wanted me to escape, I had a very big problem. 
A choice between two unknowns. Trust Agnes and the German guard and run to freedom, or keep your nose down and forge on to yet another camp in the hope this would be your last, clinging to the belief that liberation and salvation was just around the corner, and the Nazis would let you live to see the day. What would you do? Thanks for listening to the Flying Dutchman podcast. Before you go, Dickie and I have a big favour to ask. As you've heard, David Dickie Grundman has a remarkable life story that has captivated humans across the world. This entirely self-funded project has been downloaded more than 30,000 times by people from more than 35 countries. Since the podcast launched, there have been resounding calls from listeners for this series to be turned into a documentary. Now, with your help, we plan to make it happen. At almost 100 years old, Dickie will be making his final journey back to Amsterdam, the city where he was born, to celebrate this milestone birthday in June. But this is about more than just a celebration. It's about capturing the story of a survivor and sharing his wisdom with the world. To donate to our cause, head to storiestold.com.au or follow the link in our show notes.